Okay, so in our first session, we uh, considered the, briefly the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so now we're going to talk about, uh, begin to talk about the implications of it. And, and first, in this section, we're going to talk about what it means to be a Christian. And we're going to look at uh, Philippians 3 verses 8 through 11 today. I'll go ahead and read the passage. And again, I'll say this is God's word. And if you agree, say thanks be to God. Philippians 3, beginning at verse 8. It says, Indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again. Uh, Father, we are uh, still <laughs> dependent on you. Uh, we still need you. And we still understand that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so uh, we look to you to uh, be with us in our time. Uh, give us uh, grace and attentive ears, hearts, and, and minds for, uh, for your word in this session. And teach us what it means to truly be a Christian. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? What is Christianity? Different people give different answers to this question. So if you based it on popular media, the answer would be something to the effect of, Christianity is a religion practiced by judgmental and homophobic people who belong to the Republican Party, watch Fox News all day, and have Sean Hannity as their spokesperson. In many places around the world, if you ask that question, the answer would be, Christianity is America's religion. Others might say, Christianity is what you see on TBN, or late night infomercials with weird looking televangelists. Or, Christianity is filled with people who never have fun, follow a bunch of rules, and spend Friday nights watching the Left Behind movie together. <laughs> Before I was a Christian, I would have said something to the effect of, Christianity is based on a book written by men that it's fine if people want to believe, but they shouldn't try to convert other people to it. 
The more you hear people on the outside describe what it is, what Christianity is, and then compare it with the Bible, the more you see how many misconceptions there are. But our main concern in this session is not with what an outsider's perception of Christianity is, but with those of us who claim to be Christian, what we believe it is. And I believe that even within the church, there is a lot of confusion about what it means to be a Christian. And so we're here in Philippians chapter 3, and we're looking at it in the context of instructions that the Apostle Paul is giving to the church at Philippi. Now, earlier in this passage, the Apostle Paul instructs the church to watch out for the Judaizers or the, the circumcision party. And that's refer, he refers to them in verse 3 as dogs and evildoers. So the Judaizers, these were um, uh, Jews who were demanding that, that new Gentile converts be circumcised and conform to the law of Moses. So what the Judaizers were saying was, was, yes, in order to be a Christian, you have to believe in Christ and his work on the cross. But you also, in addition to that, you need to be circumcised. And in making that demand, they were adding to the gospel. And the Apostle Paul says, beware of anyone who adds to the gospel. So anytime someone says, yeah, yeah believe in Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, amen. And then you also, beware of that. Because we're justified by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once you start adding things on top of that, you, you are straying away from the gospel. And so he emphasizes in verse 3 that true Christians put no confidence in the flesh. That is, Christians do not rely on human effort or characteristics to make themselves right with God. Christianity is not first about what we do, but about what Jesus Christ has done in his finished work on the cross and in his resurrection. And so in verses six, uh, four to six, the apostle Paul uses himself as an example and he begins to run down the, all of the advantages that he had. So in verse five, we see that he was circumcised on the eighth day. That is a religious advantage. He was of the people of Israel. That's an ethnic advantage. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. That's an ancestral advantage. A Hebrew of Hebrews, that's a cultural advantage. As to the law of Pharisee, that's an educational advantage. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, that's a personality advantage. As to righteousness under the law, blameless, that's a moral advantage. And with all of these very real advantages, he says in verse 7 that he counts all those things as loss for the sake of Christ. And he's using accounting language here, and he's saying that the things that he once thought were assets before God were actually liabilities because they were keeping him from God, and that they paled in comparison to Christ. And so in verses 2 to 7 of Philippians 3, we see what Christianity is not. It's not adding to the gospel. It's not relying on human effort or privileges or advantages to be made right with God. But in our verses in this session, we're going to look at it positively. We're going to talk about what Christianity is, not what it's not, but what it is. 
And so what I want to do is I want to summarize what this message is about in one sentence and then try to show where I get it from the text. So here's the sentence. The sentence is, the essence of true Christianity is experiential, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The essence of true Christianity is experiential, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's first consider experiential knowledge. Verse 8, indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. True Christianity can be summed up in that last phrase, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And the reason why I say experiential knowledge is because the meaning of the word translated knowing in verse 8 and know him down in verse 10. That word there is not just talking about a knowledge of the facts, but the, the definition of that word is to know especially through personal experience or firsthand acquaintance. Those are two different kinds of knowledge. Experiential knowledge is contrasted with a mere theoretical knowledge. And so it's possible to know who Jesus Christ is, but not actually know him like this passage is talking about. A lot of people, especially in the West, have heard the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus is famous. There's been movies about him. Countless books have been written about him. He's been the subject of many religious courses in universities. Many people even use his name when they're mad and can't think of any other curse word to use. If you're growing up in church, if you're growing up in church, you've heard his name all the time. But to hear about him is one thing. To actually know him is a different thing entirely. Do you know him? One of my favorite actors is Denzel Washington. And I grew up watching his movies, and a few years back, I heard that he was on Broadway in a play, in a Shakespeare play, and so I was able to get some tickets and got some good seats, maybe about 10 rows back in a relatively small theater. And it was just an interesting thing to watch a movie star acting live in front of you on stage. So for, for like the first act, I was just like, I'm sitting here watching Denzel. This is crazy, because he's just a couple feet away, you know? Um, but anyway, so after the show, Denzel was gracious enough to stand out front and greet everybody who came out of the play and take pictures with us. It's like, wow, I get to take a picture with, with Denzel. And so we waited in line, and eventually, as I get closer and closer to him, I noticed two things. One, I noticed that there's a barrier between all the people and Denzel. So there's like, a, there's like a little gate there, right? You couldn't see it when you were far away, but as you got close, you were like, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to go like this in, in order to, because he, there's some distance there. That was the first thing I noticed. The second thing I noticed is that there was a big dude with a gun right next to Denzel, just in case somebody wanted to act up. Like, so it, it, it wasn't exactly what I thought it was. And so, but anyway, I, I take the picture with Denzel, and I have it, and I send it to my mom. And if you were just to look at the picture, like, you would think, wow, like, 
Does he know Denzel? And it's like, no. I just got close enough to be able to be in, in the shot with him, but he's not in the contacts in my phone. Like, no, I don't know. He doesn't know me from a can of paint. I, I think many people are like that with Jesus, that they know about him, they've heard about him, they might even get close enough to him that people might associate them with him, but there's actually a barrier between them and Christ because they don't really know him. The Apostle Paul doesn't say, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing about Jesus. No one is a Christian who's only heard about Jesus. And there's many false substitutes for knowing Jesus, and I'm going to name three. There's more, but I'll name three. First false substitute for knowing Jesus is doctrinal knowledge. Understanding systematic theology, being able to break down salvation, reading the Puritans, knowing the big theological terms, being able to talk about transubstantiation and propitiation and redemption and reconciliation and all of those things and superlapsarianism. Those things are fine. Doctrine is important. Pastors are instructed in Titus 2.1 to teach what accords with sound doctrine. You can't know Jesus apart from knowing doctrine, right? So some people say, just give me Jesus. Forget that doctrine stuff, just give me Jesus. But the first question is, well, well, who is Jesus? And once you start answering that question, it's going to be a doctrinal answer. We're going to talk about some of the things we talked about in our first session, the Son of God. We're going to talk about the Trinity. We're going to talk about his, his life, his death, his resurrection. Those, those, are, those are doctrines, core doctrines of the faith that we must hold on to. So you can't know Jesus apart from knowing doctrine, but you can know doctrine without knowing Jesus. So those, those two things are not the same thing. You can, you can, we, we can have our heads filled up with all kinds of doctrinal things, but be far from Christ, right? The Pharisees, great example of that, right? These, these cats had Genesis to Deuteronomy memorized, did not know Jesus. So doctrinal, doctrinal knowledge is one of the false substitutes for knowing Jesus. Number two, good moral performance. Good moral Performance, not committing the so-called big bad open sins, basically being a good person by the world's standards. This is common for many people who grew up in Christian homes. Because of the influence of parents and because the conscience has been enlightened by God's word, there's a restraint on the open sin that they commit. So they're not doing the stuff that their non-Christian friends are doing. And over time, they see this good moral performance as what it means to be a Christian. But being a moral person is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. Third false substitute is Christian service or ministry. Consider what the Lord Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 15. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across land, sea and land to make a single proselyte. 
And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So the Pharisees were going on mission trips, but they didn't know Jesus. It's possible to be around Jesus, but not know him. This happened with Jesus' disciple, Philip. In John 14, 8, the Lord Jesus is with his disciples. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I wonder if the Lord would say that to any of us. Have I been around you so long and you still don't know me? The essence of true Christianity is experiential, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this experiential knowledge is the promise of the new covenant. So in Jeremiah 31 to 34, and it's repeated in Hebrews 8, it says, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember that their sin no more. So, to be a Christian is to know Jesus. And do you notice how personal it is? We talked about this last time. Look again in verse 8. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. My Lord. Not somebody else's Lord. Not my parents' Lord. Not my grandparents' Lord. Not my pastor's Lord. Not my grandma, it's, it's my, not my husband's Lord. It's my Lord. He has embraced Jesus as his own. And that's, that's part of my wife's testimony. So my wife, she grew up in the church. She was heavily involved. She sang in the choir. She, she taught the youth. And she assumed that she was saved because of all of the things, the Christian things that she was doing. And it wasn't until she was an adult that she was presented with the gospel and she had her profession of faith challenged. And it was then that she began to see the warnings of Scripture, the lists of who will and who won't inherit the kingdom of God. And she realized that it actually applied to her and that for the first time she realized that if she had died in that moment, she would be condemned. And that's when she was awakened to the good news of the gospel that Jesus had died for her, personally, he had died for, not just generally, but for, for some sins of a mass out there, but specifically for her. And so she could say at that time, with Paul in verse 8, Christ Jesus, my Lord, it became personal. Is this true of you this morning? Do you know Jesus in this way? We just talked about... Uh, Chapter 2, every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord, looking ahead to the final judgment. But the mark of the Christian is to see Jesus as my Lord right now. So how does a person know if they experientially know Jesus? I think there's a number of things that we could talk about in a, in a person's life. But what I would want to boil it down to is to ask a simple question. Do you love him? Do you love him? Because to know him is to love him. 
true Christian is able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 116, verse 1, I love the Lord because he heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. And, and love for God is not just merely just kind of a sentimental, kind of bubbly feeling, but it's always connected with the corresponding hatred for sin and love for righteousness. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands in John 14, 15. That's where the part, the Lord part comes in to this. Psalm 97, verse 10 says, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. The true Christian is able to sincerely say with all his or her heart, with the hymn writer, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious redeemer, my savior, art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Do you love him? What does it look like to experience this, to experience this love for Jesus? In one sense, it's hard to put a finger on, but you know it when you see it. So someone told me a long time ago, uh, and I, I appreciated this advice, they said that whenever you're at a wedding and it's time to stand up and it's time for the bride, everyone turns and looks at the bride and how radiant and she is. And, but that person said, while that's happening, take a peek back at the groom and, and just observe what's happening in the groom. And I have to tell you, every single time I've done that, the look that's in the groom's eyes as his bride is approaching, that's it. I, 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 don't, know, I don't know how else to put that into words, but, but that's it. It's, it's, th this, is, this is the object of my affections. This is the one whom my soul loves. This is the one who, he laid down his life for me. He saved me. When I was running away from him and wanted nothing to do with him, he stretched out his arms for me and he called me to himself. And he's so patient with me now. I love him, that's my Lord. I remember, I remember uh, as, a, as, as a pastor at RCF, we would, uh, we would give membership interviews. And we would go through the person's testimony. They would share how they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And at some point in the interview, we would ask the question, do you love Jesus? And the 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 responses to that from the saints were always so encouraging because I don't think it was something that they were expecting. And, but yet as they began to answer the question, you, you, it was like the bridegroom, <laughs> the look in his eyes. And, and, and one time we were doing a, um, an interview with, a, with Miss Juliet. Miss Juliet was 
Now she's going on to be with the Lord, but at the time she was she was in her 90s, about maybe 92 years old. Um, and and so we're just we're just talking to Miss Juliet, and she's telling us her her testimony. And we're probably an hour and a half into the interview because Miss Juliet can go, <laughs> but it's okay because it's like with, with some older saints, you, you just want to sit at their feet and you're like you, you just keep going, go ahead. And so. At one point, we say, Miss Juliet, do you love Jesus? And Miss Juliet said, a, a tear, a tear just formed at her eyes. And she said, she said, I love that man. He's a wonderful man. And we say, yeah, Miss Juliet, <laughs> he is, praise the Lord. something intangible about that. It's something that, that somebody else can't answer that for you, right? That's something that each, each heart and conscience before God has to answer for themselves. I like this quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, he says, sense of sin and deep hatred to it, faith in Christ and love to him, delight in his holiness and longing after more of it, Love to God's people and distaste for the things of the world. These, these are the signs and evidences which always accompany salvation. This is what it means to be a Christian. And I think the key in that quote is, is longing after more of it. Because it can be easy to hear this and, 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 and be weighed down with guilt. Like, man, like, do I? Like, and we start navel-gazing. Like, well, well, do I love Jesus? I think it's a good question to ask, but... It's, it's, it's not a matter of being at some state of perfection, right? It's, 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 the, it's the longing after more of it. The believer says, I love Jesus. Oh, that I would love him more. So, 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 so I, know, I know some of us are, are, are wrestling with assurance. Like, 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 do I know him? I want to. I want to love him. Even that desire to want to love Jesus Christ is evidence that the Spirit of God is doing something in your heart. Oh, that I would love him more. The true believer says, I hate sin. Oh, that I would hate it more. I want to hate it more. The true believer says, I believe in Jesus. Help my unbelief, Lord. This is the mark of a true Christian. Do you know Jesus in this way? Much more could be said about this, but let's look at our second point. So the first is experiential knowledge. The second point is saving knowledge. Look again at verse 8, the end of it. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so there's two, basically two different kinds of knowledge of Jesus. There's a knowledge of Jesus that does not save and a knowledge of Jesus that saves. And in this passage, we see that in Paul's mind, it comes down to righteousness. You notice again in verse 9, you see this contrast? A righteousness of my own that comes from the law that's the kind that doesn't save. And 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the kind of knowledge that does save. Okay? So, all other human religion is about some form of a righteousness of my own. Christianity alone is about the righteousness from God. And so here, we must talk about the glorious truth of justification by faith alone. And, and one thing that we should see is that we don't want to separate uh, this from knowing and loving Christ. So it's part of what it means to know Christ. Verse 9 is sandwiched between verses 8 and 10, both of which refer to knowing Christ. So an essential part of what it means to know Christ is to know him through his way of salvation, and that is through justification. This is the Christian gospel, Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so justification answers the question, how do sinners get right in the sight of a holy God? That is the question. And whether we realize it or not, that is the most important question in our lives right now. How do sinners get right before a holy God? The eternal state of our soul depends on how we answer that question. And, and basically, there's two different kinds of ways that people can run from God. One by being bad, and the other by being good. I'll talk about both. So by being bad, when I say running from God by being bad, that's, that's typically what we think about when we think about people running from God. So we think about Galatians 5. Eight, uh, 19 and following, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When we think about people running from God, we think about, okay, like that's that's, that's, that's what the world does, right? Li living in the world, uh, do, doing all of the, the evil, wicked things that, that people who have not grown up around the things of God, all the things that they do out there. That's one way to run from God. That's how I ran from God. I, that's exactly how I ran from God as an unbeliever. But there's another way to run from God, and that is through being good. That is relying on your performance. It's, 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 and the classic example in scripture is the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? The Pharisee standing by himself prayed to God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Right? So, so, so the, the, the tax collector was an example of someone who ran from God at one point by being bad, but then we see in, in that in that story that he, he's the one that went home justified. But the Pharisee is the one who said, you know what, Lord, I just, I just want to give you thanks. I want, I, want, I want to thank you and I want to praise you because I'm not like those people over there, right? And then what did he do? He starts, he starts running down his resume, right? He says, he says, 
He says, uh, well, first he says, I'm not like these other guys, extortioners, unjust, or adulterers. And he does all of these different kinds of things. And so what, what we see is that there's, there's basically two kinds of unbelievers. There's irreligious unbelievers and religious unbelievers. And both are unbelievers. And, and I, I think that we can, especially in, in a context like ours where in this country the, the gospel has permeated to the point where there's thousands upon thousands of church buildings, right? Uh, even just in the city of Philadelphia, you just, you just ride around Philly in, in certain neighborhoods, you, like you literally can literally see a church on every block. And so there can just be this, this assumption that because we're in a, a land that has a, has a history of, of religion, that that somehow makes us better. I think, I think you particularly see it in, in Bible Belt religion in the South. It, you know, it, it kind of blew me away when I, when I began to travel down South. And I remember, I forget where I was, I think I was in Texas. And I was, I was listening to like the main radio station there. And on the main radio station they were playing back then, it was, uh, I can only imagine. They were saying, I can only imagine. I was like, wow. Like, just, just, on, just on a regular station, they, like, they, they, play, they play these kinds, like CCM songs? And what I began to, to, to understand as, as, as I talked to people from the South is that, like, this, this is just part of the culture here. Like, it's, it's just, you, God and guns, <laughs> right? It's faith, football, and family, right? You, you, got, you, you got that faith. Then you got football and family, right? Like they all, they all kind of go together, <laughs> right? Um, and that's not that's not what we that's not what we're seeing here in this pack. Like that's not what what, it, what it's about. And I'm not I'm not saying that people who are from and in the Bible Belt aren't there aren't actual Christians there. I'm just saying that it's it's what one writer referred to as uh, as as Christ haunted. That 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 is there there, there was this. Kind of old legacy, the kind of kind of the echoes of what once was there at at a time, um, and and then over time people begin to mistake the echoes for the actual sound, the actual thing, uh, and what we have to understand is that the uh, the the righteousness that that is from God spoken in verse nine is a foreign righteousness. It's something that does not belong to us naturally. It's something that must be received from God by faith. I like this verse in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so when we talk about justification, we're talking about being declared to be righteous, even though we are not actually righteous, which is the best possible news that we could possibly receive. Because if we're, if we're going to be made right with God, it can't be on the basis of our own righteousness. What we must do is look away from ourselves and look to Christ 
And that's when we start talking about his perfect life. His, his absolutely obeying every commandment of God his entire life. Thought, word, and deed. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. So often we talk about his death and we must talk about his death. We have to talk about his death imputed to us. But what we fail to talk about a lot of times is that not only did Jesus die for us, but he also lived for us. He lived in our place. And so all his law keeping, that he, the, keeping the law perfectly for, for his entire life, when we trust in Christ, we receive all that law keeping. So that God looks at us as though we live the perfect life that the Lord Jesus Christ lived. And on the cross, he treated Jesus as though he committed all of our sins, that he was guilty of all of our, of all of our crimes against heaven. Jesus was treated in that way, even though he was completely spotless. This is the great exchange. And this is glorious, and this is the only way that if we're going to know God, we must know God through his way, and this is his way. The righteousness being spoken of in verse 9, notice it says, being found in him. That's speaking of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's the beauty of it all. How does a person receive this righteousness? And it's right here in the text. It is by faith. And so this is relevant not only for how we enter into the kingdom of heaven. So we, we, we enter in by faith alone, by trusting in Jesus Christ and being declared righteous by God. But it's also relevant for the Christian life as well. So, so it's not like we, we come in one way and then we continue in our Christian lives in some completely different kind of way. So a lot of times I think, I think we, can, we can be tempted to say, okay, the gospel is death, burial, resurrection, amen, I believe that. That got me in the door. What I want to say is, it's not only what gets you in the door, but it's the path that we walk to glory by continually trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is particularly relevant when we sin because because it can be easy for us to forget where our righteousness comes from. So oftentimes we put something else in the blank. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from Christian service or a righteousness of my own that comes from my reputation, a righteousness of my own that comes from my job or my willpower or my discipline or my intelligence, or a righteousness that comes from my being a good parent, or my spiritual gifts, or my personality. Here, here, here's a way to test whether or not we're being tempted to find our righteousness in something other than Christ. One way is when we look down on someone else because they struggle with a different sin than we do. If we're able to look down on someone because they're struggling in that way, that's an evidence that 
Maybe we're finding our righteousness somewhere else other than Christ. Another way is when we have to, when we always have to be right. <laughs> we're having a discussion, it has to turn into a debate. And if it turns into a debate, we, we, we just, we just want to hold our ground. We just want, we just want to stand here, we want to grit our teeth, and we're just going to be right no matter what. We have that kind of mindset that could be evidence that we're finding our righteousness somewhere else. When we're mad at people who don't serve the same way that we do, right? We have a mindset of, I'm doing all this work for the church. I'm coming to the Saturday morning things. <laughs> I'm helping set up the chairs afterwards. Where's so-and-so? Why aren't they here? Right? Start taking pride in those things. We might be finding our righteousness somewhere else when we try to appear more godly than we actually are. Right? When we, when we, when we, when we wear that mask. Right? When someone asks, how you doing? And we know that like, our whole world is falling apart. But they come up to us after church, how you doing? We throw on the smile, oh, praise God, praise the Lord. Right? This, I mean, this is just key. It's like, this, this is at the root of most of our relational conflict. Right? If we were to kind of peel back all of the layers and kind of like work through it all, at, at, like in there somewhere, in all of our relational conflict is, is Somebody, one or, or both parties, are finding their righteousness somewhere else other than in Christ. When it becomes impossible for us to forgive somebody right, because of what they did to us, or because of what they did to someone that we love. I, 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 I just can't forgive them. Right? There might be evidence that we're finding our righteousness somewhere else. It's only through this kind of experiential saving knowledge that we'll be able to properly assess things and see things rightly. Notice how the Apostle Paul refers to his achievements. He refers to them as rubbish or street filth meant to be thrown to the dogs. And that's a play on his reference to dogs in verse 2. And so what we have to understand is all of our righteous acts are filthy rags before a holy God. Our righteous acts are filthy rags. I'm not talking about our sin, our right, the righteous stuff. True Christians not only repent of our sin, but we repent of our righteousness. I wish I could say so much more about that. True Christians, we, we don't only repent of our sin, but we repent of our righteousness. That is anything that I would be tempted to say, I'm okay with God because of this. We, 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 we turn from relating to God in that, but that's not, how, that's, not, that's not how we're meant to relate to God. We're meant to relate to God by saying, God, yes, we, we, we believe you, we turn from our sins, and any good thing that I do, Praise God, I didn't do it. You did it through me. You get all the glory. And I'm not going to ever once try to put you in my debt 
because of the things that I'm doing for you. Because that, be, that can be so tempting to say, God, I've, I've done this, I've done this, I've done that. I did it the right way. So why is my life like this now? It's a misunderstanding of, of our righteousness. We don't deserve anything but the wrath of God because of our sin. God has been gracious to us. We can't be placing our fallen human demands on an all-wise God. He knows, he knows exactly what he was doing. He knows what he was doing when he saved us, and he knows what he's doing when he takes us through various trials. The surpassing worth, gaining Christ, being found in him. There's a story in the New Testament about a woman who rightly assessed things, and I want to close with this. Turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Many Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he, was, he, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used, he, he, used to, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep for the day of my burial. Keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have with me. So talk about what does it mean to, to love Jesus? I mean, we see it here with Mary, there, there are a number of things that are remarkable about, about what she does here. Number one is the fact that she, that she lets down her hair, which, which in that culture was, was an expression of, of intimacy. And, and that she would use her hair to wipe his feet, which, look, we're talking they're dirty feet, right? We're, we're talking the Middle East. We're talking it's hot, it's arid. Like, like this, this, is a, this is a climate where like there's sand and dirt everywhere. So, 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 so for, for her to use this, exp, this, this expression of intimacy and then let down her hair in order to wipe his feet, that shows an extreme devotion in love. What, what is she saying there? She's saying, Lord, I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what people think about me. 
I'm not even worried about, I'm not worried about any of that. I want to serve you. I, want, I, 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 I love you. And then it says that she took this expensive ointment and poured it all out, which this was, this was a family heirloom. This, this was likely the most valuable thing that they had in their possession as a family. It's like basically taking all the inheritance, everything that we received, and just completely just giving it away. And that's what she does there. It's, it's, a, it's the devotion of a disciple who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And for her, it doesn't matter. Give me three more of these things, and I'll pour those out as well. And you notice the re response from the crowd, right? Judas, they're concerned about appearances, how things look, right? That's the difference between that other kind of running from God, right? right? It's, it's, it's just concerned about how things look. How, how, how do I appear to other people? How am I looking? But this true devotion is, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not concerned about that. I'm, my eyes are focused on my Lord. And I love him, and I'm going to do whatever I can by his grace to demonstrate that love in my life. And that's what we see from our sister. And then what a commendation she gets from the Lord Jesus. What? Leave her alone. That she may keep it for the day of my burial. She had insight into Christ that nobody else in the room had because she didn't just know about him, but she knew him. She drew near to him enough to know him. May we, by God's grace, draw near in that way. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, to give all that we have, pour out ourselves for your glory. Lord, we love you because you first loved us and you gave your son to be the propitiation for our sins. So may we, may we walk in experiential saving knowledge of Jesus for the glory of your name and for the good of our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen.